0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Talk20s podcast. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we're joined in the studio by Grace Rose Gwyn. Grace is one of the youngest barristers in the UK after being called to the bar at age just 21. In this episode, Grace talks candidly about the sexist and ageist prejudices she experienced as a junior barrister working in a male-dominated profession. And this episode is one to watch if you're a young person trying to build a successful career in a challenging and demanding industry. Just a quick trigger warning for this episode, Grace does go into some detail about some of her cases which do contain sensitive subjects including incidents of sexual assault. Grace, welcome to the podcast. So delighted to have you here. You're a very busy woman. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> you're a super busy woman because you're a barrister. Like yeah. that is absolutely crazy and sounds like a really grown-up job to me.
1: Yeah, I mean it's like playing a role almost because My job is serious. It's grown up. And then I go home and I'm just back to normal me. So it is funny. It's like playing a character.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting, I think, because anyone who listens to this right now, whether they're studying law, involved in law or just interested in kind of hearing your story, Mm -hmm. um, I think we can learn so much from it because it is super interesting, especially as you got called to the bar at 21. Like that's so young to kind of be stepping into a career like that. Tell us like how you were feeling at that moment in time when you got all of that was going on for you. So the day I passed my bar
1: exam was mental because you worked your whole life for it. And when I say whole life, it sounds dramatic, but (laughs) I've known I wanted to be a barrister since since I was 16. Yeah. So when I looked at my emails and saw that I passed, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And then it was the call ceremony, which is when you get to wear your wig and gown for the first time and you will trot off to London and there's there's just swarms of you. Yeah. And it's literally like a scene from Harry Potter, everyone in their robes walking around. Love it. And then you all standing a, in a line and then it's like graduation. But for the first time, they declare you as a barrister of England and Wales. Mm-hmm. And obviously your family are in the audience. So it is a huge moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is quite funny because you see... Passers-by, looking in, thinking, why are all these people in fancy dress? It looks like, you know, (laughs) a Comic-Con situation.
0: But yeah, um, it was a brilliant day. Mm -hmm. And for you then, were you one of the youngest people to be stood in that queue at graduation?
1: Yeah, don't get me wrong, there were people in my age range. Yeah. But one of the coordinators came up to me after and told me. Yeah. And, you know... I like the title, but I think it's because my birthday falls in July, so it was Ah, one of those. That makes you one of the. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Now I'm just a normal barrister, no no one really cares about my age now because I've been doing it for a few years. Mm
0: -hmm. But yeah, but um, at one point you were the youngest barrister in like the UK. Well, that's what they told me. Unless you lie
1: to me, and then I've just been riding this wave ever since. It's a PR thing, babe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just roll with it. You got to do what you got to do. Definitely. I think I think the thing that you are such a role model in this industry as well is because not only do you, you do a job like that, but you're also you show your reality behind it as well and I think that's why we love doing this podcast because Mm -hmm. the people that come on they'll actually tell it like it is in your 20s you know doing a job like you do a lot of people don't get the inside scoop you get a very professional Mm -hmm. outside approach and not saying that anything that you do is unprofessional but it's nice to see the reality (laughs) It's no, want to see the reality? Absolutely. And I think it's important. And the reason
1: I'm so open about the reality of the job is because I wish I had had that when I was going through this process mm-hmm. because it's so glamorised about, you know, you get the wig and gown and you get to stand up in court and argue and people think it's like in America where you get to pace around a courtroom and slamming your fists on the table. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it's a great job, but it is really difficult. And mm. the process to becoming a barrister is never spoken about in the way it ought to be. You know, Mm. the rejection and the statistics to actually get pupillage, which is your training year, are ridiculously competitive. Mm -hmm. And so it's that knowledge that I like to give to people coming through the ranks. And also what to expect, you know, on your first day as a barrister, funnily enough, you're not going to be doing a murder trial. You're doing the people that steal a can of, but of beer from Tesco. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing that I wish yeah. I had known what I was getting myself in for. Mm-hmm. Not that it would have changed anything, but I think it's quite refreshing to see that actually barristers aren't these formidable people that are completely unrelatable. They are people like me that, You know, go to the gym, go out with the girls Mm -hmm. and then
0: still do a serious job at Mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're going to talk about the roots to kind of get into law and stuff like that. But I think what's really important to kind of talk about up top on the podcast Mm -hmm. is the amount of conversations you've had to have because you're a young female barrister and people look at you like, do you even know what you're doing? Oh, 100%. yeah. But, I mean, of course, like a lot of people are going to have questions and stuff like that. But how much has that impacted you as, as a barrister? It
1: happens a lot. And it, it happens over the smallest of things. I mean, I was wearing a long black puffer coat and I was questioned as being a client simply because I was in that coat. And because I was young and female. And so they are, some of them are just So they thought you were the person who committed correct. the crime. Well, at that point it was, a, it was a family matter, but yeah, they thought I was a, a lay client. Right. And it's just, and it, I've been spoken to only last week by a professional mm-hmm. that was so dismissive of me because he thought I was the mom in a family case. And I was asking him, are you on this case? Because I wanted to know if he was my opponent. And he was like, I'm on lots of cases. I said, right, okay. Mm-hmm. But are you on this case? well, you, if you just wait there, love, your solicitor will come down and chat to you in a minute. I was like, listen, I'm your opponent. I'm not a party in this. And he went bright red. Wow. And the thing is, those kind of things happen. And I don't understand why people assume that I'm, I'm, I'm never, the, the assumption is never that I'm the barrister first time. Mm-hmm. I'm the work experience kid. I'm the client. I'm, you know, here to take notes at the back of the courtroom. And so it, it is quite
0: entertaining sometimes, but mm-hmm. it is just baffling the, mm-hmm. the assumptions there are. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Obviously like, you know, you're doing one of what one of the top, you know, jobs in the country, super well respected, and then to kind of, you know, have that moment what, what do you feel as an individual when those kind of moments happen? Because does it not your confidence or how do you kind of rise above it? Because I think, you know, our listeners now will have probably experienced people mm. underestimating them because of their age. What, what advice would you give? Well, my first reaction is anger.
1: Yeah. But you've got to remain professional. So I feel my
0: blood boiling. Mm. And then after,
1: you just correct them very politely because often their humiliation is more than punishment enough. Yeah. And they're not going to make the same mistake twice, True. hopefully. But then he kept trying to apologise. And I said, listen, let's just talk about the case now. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was just a bit embarrassing and cringy for us both that he kept apologizing. Yeah. But I mean, you've just got to, hopefully with education, it just becomes less and less frequent. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if people have these preconceptions, you kicking off isn't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. So just stay true and, and behave the
0: way you would expect to behave yourself. And they're often too embarrassed to say anything. It's like showing the maturity yourself, really. Yeah. You're, you know, you're showing how mature you are from that situation, really. If you kind of show the anger, it kind of, I guess it plays into it a bit exactly. more. Exactly. And
1: it's an air of confidence that even if you don't believe yourself at the time, you just, it's fake it till you make it. And you mm-hmm. just, you act as if it's such a
0: ridiculous assumption to make that it's embarrassing for them, not yeah. for you. I love that. I love that. Your route to becoming a barrister, then. Talk us through. I do not know much about law, but my best friend is works in that industry. And so she tells me as much as I probably know about law. But, you know, for our listeners who maybe aren't in that profession and tell us what it's like to kind of get to where you've got to, because I know it isn't easy. So I was 16 and a massive attention seeker.
1: So <laughs> yeah. when I found out what a barrister was and I found out by watching a television show that had barristers in, I thought these people get paid to argue. And that is sick. That is yeah. so good. Yeah. And actually, I love to scrap. Not physical. Well, no, not physical. <laughs> yeah. I love a verbal argument. And so yeah. for me, the fact these people existed, and I literally Googled how to become a barrister and then followed the steps. So I went to university to do a law degree, got that, went to Manchester, and then I did the bar course, which is basically a barrister boot camp. Mm-hmm. And it's nine months of you just being grilled. They have actors that come in and pretend to be your clients or witnesses. You get taught how to cross-examine. But then after that, you have to get pupillage. And that's where the real difficulty starts because they are so hard to get. Mm-hmm. And it took me three years to get pupillage. And it's something that a lot of people shy away from. People aren't really honest about how many years it took them to get it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite important so people don't feel alone because it's quite... People don't understand. And so friends of mine, they're like, it's just a job. You just got rejected from a job. And I'm saying, it's not because I can only apply for this job once a year. So Mm. when I get my rejections, which I've had plenty, I then have 12 months of my life to fill. One, recovering from the rejection, but also thinking, what can I do to make my application stand out more the following year? Mm -hmm. Um, And that happened to me. But also the interviews are intense. Often you're sat in a horseshoe of barristers and they are just firing questions at you, often simultaneously. And it's how you manage the questions. They'll also say to you, you know, do you believe in the death penalty? And you give your answer and they say, right, now argue for the opposite side, now go. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then what, you feel- What do you even say in those situations? And it's about oh, how quickly yeah. you can argue something you, you don't believe in because that's such a big part of the job. You know, I'm given instructions almost on a daily basis from clients. And I think, mm, that really happened? Or are you sure? But mm. they're your instructions and you run with them because mm. if you don't come across like you're confident in your client's argument- no judge
0: is ever going to have confidence in what you're saying. So interesting. I think, honestly, I mean, that. how do you do that? Because I wouldn't even know how to start. Like, how do you build yourself up to have enough confidence to be able to do that in a room? It's difficult. I think for me,
1: public speaking always came quite naturally because mm-hmm. I'd done quite a lot of acting as a child. And so performing arts and being in the spotlight was something I became accustomed to. However, it becomes very different when you're arguing for someone, potentially life and children. Mm-hmm. So when I do family cases and there's a potential for the child to get adopted, you know, that really is that they're everything. And so the pressure for that is difficult. Yeah. And there are sometimes I'm driving home from work and I think, oh, maybe I should have said that. And it, it's hard because it comes home with you. But it's something that you just have to give the best and, and give your all to every time. And mm-hmm. it's, it's about time management and juggling. Because if I've been in court all day, I've then carried the weight of that with me. Let's say it's been an awful result, if it's a you know a child sex abuse case or mm-hmm. something really that comes home with you. But then you have to switch off and then prepare for the following day's client because that client deserves your energy as much as the previous client did. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think it becomes the difficulty. And that's when I talk about the reality of the job. You know, I've been in tears from a case and sometimes happy tears. You know, if a client of mine has had allegations made or and has been dismissed or they have made allegations about an ex-partner and they've been found to be true. And I've cried because it's just relief of a good job done. Mm-hmm. And then 10 minutes after, the solicitor for my following day's case has called me saying, right, what we're we doing for tomorrow? And it's literally, you just snap back into it. Mm-hmm. And that becomes
0: quite difficult. Do you kind of feel a little bit robotic when you're kind of having to kind of go from case to case to case? Like, Because ultimately you are a human. So like, how do you do that? Like, and switch off? Because I think that's, super tricky and I even struggle with that in business you know mm-hmm. like every single day there's you know I wake up and we've got you know maybe two amazing guests we've got that afternoon but there's a whole bunch of meetings and content and things yeah. that I need to approve emails I need to send in the morning and I need to do my prep like you know a lot of jobs will have huge amounts of pressure mm. how do you actually get through and get up the next day and go I'm ready to do this again without getting burnt out
1: I think it's because the robotic side, it happens because it's so methodical what you do. You get up, you go to court, you come home, you prep, you get up, and go to court. Yeah. But actually you're dealing with someone's life. And so complacency is a killer in this game because ultimately I might be someone's one shot to get their child back or, yeah. you know, for whatever reason. And so the emotion and for that six hours, I am that person's voice in that case. And so for me, there's a robotic side and methodical that I get up and do my job, but there's an emotional investment that I have because I have to give the best service to my client. Mm -hmm. And if I'm switched off to their needs and to their feelings and what they're trying to achieve, then they may as well instruct someone else because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do the best job for them. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the pressure that you've got a real life client sat behind you and they are asking you to fight for them that stops you becoming too robotic or too complacent, Mm -hmm, I would say. mm
0: -hmm. It's so interesting. And I think, you know, I'd be really interested to understand how how someone helps you train for that as well. So like, you know, going through your pupillage, um, were you one of the youngest there? Do you think your sex and gender and any of those kind of things were kind of taken into account through your training? Um, and, And kind of what was that to kind of get you to your point where you are today?
1: In regards to the pupils, when I was going through my pupilage, the pupils were a very similar age to me, so I didn't feel any different then. Yeah. And in so far as my chambers where I work wasn't treated any differently, it becomes very apparent when you've got a real client. Mm -hmm. I've had male clients that have refused to have me as their barrister because I'm a woman. And it's often those that have been accused of sex offenses and they don't feel comfortable talking about that with a female. And so that I almost kind of understand because Mm -hmm. they're entitled to whatever representation they want. But insofar as the training for the emotions, no, you don't get that. And that just comes from part and parcel of doing the job. And there's a huge difference between bar school when you've got an actor sat across you or sat from behind Mm -hmm. you being your client. So someone who is real, they've got real feelings and they've got real lives. Mm -hmm. And that jump is huge and cannot be underestimated. You know, my first case, I was prosecuting, a stalking, harassment and domestic violence case. And I had a victim at home that was waiting for the result. And I didn't forget her the whole time because her life depended on it. Him Mm -hmm. going to custody meant that she would have, could live a life without looking over her shoulder at least the time he was in prison and the restraining order that would follow it. And so for me, you you just can't forget that. And it's impossible, I would say, to forget that because you are faced with them on a daily basis. But no, there is no training for that. There's also no training for keeping your personal safety secure, which Mm. is a huge part of the job um, and has to be taken into account. Even this morning when I left court, I purposely loitered by the security to wait for my opponent client to leave because I didn't want them to know where I'd parked my car. And so it's a very real concern and a a concern I would say more so because I'm a woman. So Mm. I will take different routes walking back to the car park if I've been in a particularly nasty case. You know, last week I was prosecuting again, well, I was cross-examining a domestic abuser. And again, I waited at court for him to leave and asked security to let me know when he'd gone I didn't want him to know where my car was or what my number plate was. Mm-hmm. That you don't get taught at bar school. That's just, you've got to go with your gut and what you feel is right and safe for you mm-hmm. at the time. Have you ever felt unsafe in yeah. what you do? Yeah, yeah, there's been a few occasions. I was, I was followed home once um, when I, I lived in Devon and I used to walk back from the court. And a, a man I prosecuted that morning, because I used to practice crime at the time, he followed me back. And I was walking really weird ways to get back to my, to my house. And I, my heart was in my throat at that point. I've also had uh, court security that have come to me in the crown court and say, "Uh, Miss Gwyn, we don't want you to leave yet because Mm -hmm. the defendant uh, that you've just been cross-examining for however long is standing by your car because I was the only car left in the car park. And there are times like that, you know, my mum bought me a personalised number plate for Christmas I haven't put it on my car yet as in Christmas 2021 mm. I haven't put it on my car yet just because in the back of my mind I'm thinking is this a wise decision for you to do for your safety so that it, it's a, it's a huge consideration and a massive part of the job did you think about all those things when no. you wanted to be a barrister and didn't know about those things yeah. that's the thing you don't you don't think about it no. um and this is why I talk about it on my Instagram because it's important for people to know what they're letting themselves in for mm. I'm not doing it to dissuade people from joining I want as many juniors as possible But I wish someone had told me, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like I'm writing a book at the moment and it's literally a book that I wish I'd had when I was going through that process of becoming a barrister, getting pupillage and your first few cases, because it's important to know what you are letting yourself in for. Mm
0: -hmm. When you step into your 20s, some of the biggest struggles our listeners share with us are money orientated. We know it's hard sometimes to find your feet in regards to money when big life changes happen. Maybe you're leaving uni, moving out, moving cities, starting a new job, getting married, making career changes, starting businesses. These big life moments can be expensive. And that's why we've teamed up with our sponsors Zopa Bank to open up more conversations around money. To us, it's really important that we talk more openly with our friends and close network about how money impacts our lives. So let's stop brushing this under the carpet and start opening up. Thank you, Zopa, for supporting us on this mission. You can find out more about Zopa by downloading their app. Talk to us about your first few cases then, because that also coincided with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. It did. It's very anticlimactic. You know, you wanted your wig, your gown and all of that kind of stuff. Talk us through like the beginnings of that then. So in Pupillage,
1: you spend the first six months shadowing barristers around court. So you are effectively a work experience kid, really. And you just learn the ropes. And the second six months, the first day of your second six, that's the big day because it's the first day you are the barrister because in your first six months, you don't speak. You just sit behind the barrister. And my first case was eight days after the pandemic. So my first case was the 1st of April, 2020. And we went into lockdown the 23rd of March. Mm -hmm. So I'd spent months, as soon as that booking went in my diary, I spent months amping myself up. I was like, that's it. I'm going to wear really high heels. I'm going to wear thick opaque black tights, my wig, my gown, I'm going to swan around, I'm going to be a real barrister. And then they were like, nope, no, you're not. (laughs) So then I ended up doing the case in my tracksuit bottoms, uh, a suit jacket on the top, no wig, no gown, and sat in my mum's office at home, which is the same office I used to study in when I was 16 doing my GCSEs. So it was a bit like, and you know, I was doing this really serious job and then My mom was cooking me tea, you know, so it just didn't make, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And that went on until the courts reopened. Mm -hmm. Had anyone else in your family ever
0: practiced law or done any
1: of that? Like no, no one in my family been to university. Oh, wow. So it was really like Google,
0: find out what to do and and do the steps. And, and that's what I did. You said that you had three years, obviously where you kind of got rejected and stuff Mm. like that. You know, you know, you had your 12 months where you kind of had to figure out what you were going to do. What what did you end up doing at that time?
1: I did what any normal person does and packs up everything and moved to America. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, if you don't want me in England, if you don't want me as a barrister in England, I'll be a barrister in America. Yeah. So I applied for a job in Connecticut and I was a criminal defence attorney and personal injury lawyer out there for a year. What was that like with the US cases? Was it Mad. different? It's completely different. What you see on the TV and in film is real. really, And that's what I wanted to see. I was thinking there's no chain gangs in court. Yep, there are. You hear the defendants coming before you see them. The first day the judge was wearing flip-flops, which was wild to me. Um, and everything is different. Everything, you know, there's no doc. So when I was representing, I remember a gentleman that I was representing that committed an armed robbery and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He was stood, nothing to do with me, by the way, I did a great job. (laughs) He was stood next to me and I was thinking, oh my God, this man's about to get sentenced and there's no doc. So I've seen, I've seen court cam on YouTube where they attack their lawyers. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God. And then as soon as the judge even mouthed the word custody, all of a sudden these court marshals were on him. He was bent over the table, cuffed and out of the court before I'd even realised what had happened. It is just a completely different world out there. Mm. You know, even the guns out there. In courts, we have no smoking signs. They have no handgun signs. So instead of the <laughs> cigarettes, a little pistol. You And it says, please Whoa. leave your guns at the door because you're not allowed them in a federal building. You're allowed to have them, just not in our federal building. <laughs> so it crazy. was just it was just insane, but brilliant experience, and I think helped me get pupillage yeah. because I had I'd done something different, and I yeah. think that would be my advice to anyone that gets rejected: is do and go and do something different that makes you stand out, that's still related to your field, mm-hmm. and that's what A I lot did. Of people would have just gone traveling, you yeah. Know?
0: That would have been the and that I combined would have been both, years, you know, yeah. and
1: you know my weekends I was going to Massachusetts and Rhode Island, yeah. but in the week I was still hustling,
0: yeah. just to gain that experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's absolutely crazy, especially yeah. about the handguns thing. Like, I don't even know, you know, what I would do in those situations. Well, it was pretty
1: frightening at some points because yeah. it's so open over there and they're so lax in, in their gun laws. But also, I just turned 21. So I I was only just legal to drink in their country. Of course. And there I was representing them. At that yeah. point, they were like, no. Because in, in America, you can't even start a law degree until you're 21. It has to be a so postgraduate degree. Way, way degree. young yeah. then.
0: They thought I was some child genius
1: and I didn't correct them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So how, how did you even get that job then out there in the Google. States? Google. Like, sounds like Google is literally Google. your best friend.
1: <laughs> I Googled, um, I did know people that lived in Connecticut and I okay. thought it's important to go somewhere, at least know someone. Yeah, for sure. In case everything went wrong and I would have someone there. And I Googled law firms and I messaged them and I said, look, this is my situation. I'm qualified in the UK. I'm trying to get the training year. I will come and work for either no money or very little money for as Mm -hmm. long or as short as you want me. Mm -hmm. And two of them said, "Yep, come on down and we'll Mm -hmm. have you.
0: Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, Let's talk about the money in law. Yeah. From the outside, I assume you work in law. You must make absolutely tons of money. Yeah. Am I right am I wrong? Depends on what you do. Okay.
1: So if we're looking at sort of tax and shipping lawyers, then I um, it's an eye-watering amount of money. Um, but I also wouldn't want to do tax or shipping law. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um if you look at crime, I mean the criminal barristers have been striking recently because of how underpaid they are. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you break it down, you'll get a fixed fee for a case. That doesn't take into account the preparation time the travel time, the time you're in court, the time you're waiting for your court case to be called on and the time you spend talking to your client. So when you break all that down, some of the criminal barristers were making less than minimum wage. And I think that's important to know that barristers aren't these sort of fat cats Mm -hmm. that are raking in hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. Of course, those lawyers exist. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it completely depends on what your practice looks like and what area you do. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another real consideration to, to, to make when you... joining this profession is what area of law you want to go into and what's also sustainable for you to have if you've got a mortgage, rent, children. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all very live concerns that barristers have had as
0: recently as last year when they were striking. Mm -hmm. So for you then, Correct me if I'm wrong, that you, you don't have a standard salary that you kind of see throughout the Correct. year. It all completely depends on what you are like prosecuting. Because I'm self-employed. Yeah. Okay. So uh,
1: I get paid on a case-by-case basis and I do family, personal injury and clinical negligence work. Mm-hmm. And it can completely vary. Mm-hmm. Some days I'll get paid a fixed rate and it doesn't matter whether I'm there 10 minutes or 10 hours. Sometimes in family, it works on an hourly basis. So you sort Mm -hmm. of rack up your hours that way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, every year varies, which is why they say to any aspiring lawyers that are self-employed, financial management is key because you won't make the same next month as you did last month They'll you know,
0: shoot up or, or completely plummet. How do you manage that finance side of things then? Because you're no, you're young. You're only like late twenties. Yeah, twenty seven. Twenty seven. Yeah. Um, how do you manage that financial uncertainty then? Because I think like just from you know stepping out of the lawyer situation, mm. like managing your finances being self employed is tough, right? Really tough. And
1: again, you're not taught this. Mm. So I was very lucky insofar as my pupil supervisor sat me down and gave me a sort of wealth management chat. And he said, Don't fall into the rule of three. The rule of three for barristers, and it's probably for a lot of self employed people. You spend the money when you get the book in. Woohoo, I've got the book in. I'm yeah. making this money. <laughs> you spend the money when you've done the case. Oh my God, I've done the case. I've got yeah. this money. And then you spend the money when you get paid. Yeah. So the time you've been paid for a
0: case, you've spent it three times. I've definitely dreamt about all the different ways Do you, you know spend what? it, and then you go, "Oh no, I've got to pay all these bills." Yeah, <laughs>
1: and so for me, I put fifty percent of everything into a different
0: account for yeah. tax and VAT and all of that, yeah. and for emergencies. So I, I deal with it like that. Yeah, I like that way. I think it's quite a simple way, and it's kind of then you can own, you're only you're always looking at half, yeah. of what you've got as like that, and then the rest is to help you out and when that, you need it exactly. And that yeah. part I
1: don't even see as mine. It's it's a tax man's money, and when yeah. he comes knocking, the money's there for him, him to get paid. To him. Yeah. yeah.
0: And anything that's left in it, I guess, Yeah, is a Brucey bonus. (laughs) Amazing. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm really intrigued to hear more about some of the more challenging cases that you've worked on and kind of the realities behind what it was actually like working on those cases. I know you cannot divulge too many details, obviously, so you have to kind of give an overview. But what are the ones that kind of really stand out for you that kind of really changed probably the course of your life? I think there have been a few.
1: My first child sex abuse case is something that I don't think I'll ever forget. It was three weeks long. Again, all of this is in a family setting so I wasn't involved in the criminal proceedings at all. It was just a decision about where the children would go Mm. and this man um, was from Birmingham which is where I'm from. I didn't know him Uh, but he had impregnated his daughters. There was two of them and he'd also been sexually abusing his eight-year-old daughter and to sit across a courtroom from him, and I was sat probably the same distance between me and you mm. for about three weeks, and then hearing him give evidence about those matters. I mean, I dreamt about this man every night for weeks after that. And it really stuck with me, probably because it was my first one. And also, lawyers have this tendency, and we have to. We talk about things in very clinical terms. And it's almost very medical. But actually, there are it's a real it's a real little girl. It's an eight year old girl that her yeah. life will never ever be the same. And that one has stuck with me. And actually, I, I cried a few times about that. Um, another one, again, it's, it's the child sex stuff that, that yeah. sticks with it, which probably isn't surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, but just so about that three-week-long one, that man hadn't even been charged with a crime. We were dealing with the family. So I don't even know whether that man was criminally prosecuted for that. The next one, again, was not was not too long after that. Again, I was very junior. And a man had been arranging for people in Thailand to come over and rape his daughter. And he'd been filming her in the bath Sorry, and what? basically marketing her as a sex toy. And I had to read about 500 pages of text messages. So I didn't see anything because the police do all of that and we get descriptions. So we are sort of safeguarded from yeah. that aspect. But I had to read the, the bargaining that happened over this infant... Um, That one was pretty tough. And I remember the the barrister I was with said, Grace, go home. Because I was reading and there was just tears streaming. You do get a lot more emotionally robust. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last time I cried was probably um, mid 2021. And that was my, uh, again, a child sex abuse case Mm -hmm. where a man had been abusing his infant daughter, filming himself and selling it to paedophiles online. So um, that was it's, it's all those kind of cases, and that and this is what I'm saying—they're heavy, yeah—and they come home with you, and then you have to switch off because the next day you might be having an argument whether little Jimmy should be picked up from Sainsbury's car park at four or four thirty between his lovely parents that both love him, mass- you know, yeah, and it's that it's that change, or I might be, you know, someone's reversing to someone in the in the Morrison's car park, mm-hmm. you know, no emotion at all, yeah, but equally they deserve my attention as much as
0: mm-hmm. they gruesome casters wow I mean that's that's tough to take yeah. home I mean it's even tough for me even hearing it now and for our listeners now they're probably thinking wow I don't even know how you kind of even argue for that as mm. well like because you kind of also have to in some cases would you be defending people you like represent yeah. I, I wasn't representing him I was actually representing
1: the little girl so yeah. it was a an emotionally easier job for me yeah. but I spoke to his barrister at length and she had her personal views, and she she. But yeah. it didn't matter. She still had
0: an argument to run for her client. How do you put those things aside? Because yeah. I think, like, just hearing that, like, I think it's. Re- I think the job you do is pretty crazy and insane to be able to put yourself in that headspace.
1: Yeah, and uh, well, I don't know how you deal with you. You have no choice but to. Yeah. you know, if there's that argument. Everyone's got a, a right to a, f- a fair trial, and you think, yeah, I get that. But when you've you've pleaded guilty to it and you're a currently serving prisoner but then you're arguing you should still get mm-hmm. sleepovers with your child. It seems a bit crazy. Um, yeah. But these things happen. I mean, some of the times in the courtroom, it's literally like an episode of Jeremy Kyle. It's wild. I mean, mm. I've had what and where, because family proceedings are all confidential. So unless you're a parent or a party, you're not allowed in. Mm. So it tends to be social services, mom, dad, and then the guardian for the child. And I've had live DNA test results emailed to me in the middle of a trial that confirms that the father is not the father. So what do you do then? What do you do then? We have to stand up and, ex- and try and get them out so you can tell the judge that actually we've got an issue because this man shouldn't be in this hearing because he's not the dad. But another barrister received the email at the same time as me. He'd leapt up and said, Your Honour, um, this father is not the father. It was like an episode of Jerry Springer and this dad launched himself at mom, who was in the witness box and just started pummeling no. her. So we're all escorted out by security and then we're locked in conference rooms and dad's just going mad. He's throwing chairs at people. He's got a social work around by the throat. And this is, and then you, you just finish at 4.30 and then you're like, see ya. Do you finish at 4.30 no. though? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> is that normal? Like how long can a day go? I've been, the latest I've been sat in a courtroom in a physical courtroom is quarter to 10 in the evening. And that was on that three week sex yeah. trial. Um There's there's not a nine to five. So for example, today I've been in court this morning, Mm -hmm. finished at midday and now I'm here. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow I might be in court for seven hours. It completely depends on how the case is going, how quickly the judges are running. Mm -hmm. But then you come and prep when you're home. So tonight I'll go back to Birmingham and then probably be up till one, two in the morning prepping for
0: tomorrow's case but you're a 20 something that enjoys going out and having a good time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You've got, you know, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people will look at on your social media. Like you are a normal 20 something year old female. Mm -hmm. You like going out, having a good time. You like spending time with your friends and stuff like that. How does that part of grace slot into it? life as a barrister. I
1: think she comes out at like 5pm on a Saturday and then goes (laughs) goes back in about 10am on a Sunday so I can prep for the Monday. I mean, so much of this job is going out but it tends to be going out with networking with clients. But yeah, the weekends, I, 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 I don't do any work on a Saturday. I never have. And
0: I will always work on a Sunday to prepare for the next week. So it's like one day off per week, yeah. and that's your kind of free time and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You've also had people comment and say really strange, in my opinion, mm-hmm. things about how you can possibly be a barrister because of the way that you look yeah. and dress. To me, because I've got boobs, yeah, because you've got boobs, yeah. someone's literally said that to you, yeah. <laughs> because I've got
1: because I was showing cleavage on a night out, so no barrister should do that. So I couldn't have been one. I said, okay, sorry.
0: Sorry for any offence I may have caused. What do you do in that situation when people are really underestimating you or telling you you can't do something? Uh, If it's randoms on a night out, I just don't really care. I just think, you know what,
1: you're an idiot. I do what I do for a job. I love what I do. And if my breasts offend you, then I'm ever so sorry. I enjoy them. (laughs) (laughs) them. I'm joking. Um, A lot of my friends jump in and say things. Uh, My best friend is a huge advocate for me being a barrister. She loves it. It's her favourite thing to do on a night out. If someone's questioning me, she'll say, what does she do for a living? And they're like, "Mm, I don't know.
0: What, what do people
1: say? Oh, I, I do. I, I have cosmetics, uh, right. esthetician. Um, I get HR. Um, HR. Marketing. Like, just very, quite sort of, very yeah. general jobs. Like, no, Teacher. I, I put people away who do crack. Yeah. <laughs> Teacher, I've had Brilliant. a lot. Um, but, I mean, it is what it is. It annoys me in a professional context. It doesn't really annoy me on a night out. Yeah.
0: So. hmm Um, I think it's, you know, it's so interesting to kind of hear your story as well. I think what a lot of people will kind of be wanting to know is that like, you know, obviously you talked a little bit about rejection there, but like your twenties are hard Mm. and you are going to make mistakes as well. So like in your job, have you ever made a mistake that you kind of feel like really kind of stuck with you or you thought, I learned so much from that. You wouldn't maybe take it away or rub it out, but Mm. like, it was something that you kind of, you went through because you were maybe young, like, or maybe a little bit naive in the situation.
1: I think there's a few. One that really stands out to me was in my first week. And when I was doing crime and I was representing a man who had been part of a sex trafficking ring and I was waiting for him in the cell. So I was in a conference room. This is the first time I've ever been in cells. So Mm -hmm. I was almost just sort of winging it. I had no real idea what to do, what the etiquette was. And I put myself in the corner of the cell of the conference room. Mm -hmm. So when he came in, When he sat down, I realized that he was sat between me and the panic button. And I was like, oh, if anything, I was meant to sit in that seat, but I didn't know. Mm. And you just, you just pick a seat. So there was two seats in the room, 50% chance of me getting it right. And I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And that, nothing happened and he was fine. But that to me really stuck with me. And again, it it comes back to this personal safety issue. That yes, we're there to do a job. But I'm not going to risk my life for any client or any case, mm-hmm. and that really because I I spent the whole conference on edge because I thinking if he if I give him advice he doesn't like because things weren't looking great mm-hmm. things were looking like custody was in his very near future mm-hmm. and I thought if I say something he doesn't like he, he can get to me now and I can't get to that panic button this was a big six foot four
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: eighteen stone You're man. on your own yeah yeah. So that, I think, was it a mistake? Yes, but I, I massively learned from it. Yeah. But the real take home, I think for me, my career has been rejection and, and knockbacks because there mm. are some times I've been so low from just having chambers reject me and say I'm not good enough for them. Mm. And the chambers I'm at now is my dream chambers. And so everything for a reason and you know, persevering and doing different things and hearing no, using it
0: as motivation to then get a yes, I think is my biggest learning lesson so mm-hmm. far in life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, we always talk about on Talk20s, we always say that like nobody's perfect yeah. and everyone is working on something in their lives. You know, it's amazing that you are, you know, a barrister and a lot of people will be looking up to you. But we know from speaking to so many people like behind the scenes that like, that's not the reality. Like mm. everyone is actually trying to get better at something in their life at this moment in time. For you, what's, what's that thing that you're trying to get better at professionally or personally? What's that thing you're trying to work on for yourself right now? To me, it is being a better barrister. It's, it's getting more and more
1: complex cases and, you know, important cases, but also combating any self-doubt. Mm. And I think the part of it is internal, but also part of it is external because people are doubting me on a daily basis. And it's just, again, having that air of confidence. I come across as a very confident person, but there are some times I think, oh God, I'm not the real barrister here. You know, these people in their 40s and 50s are the real barristers, especially when they're throwing their weight around. Because mm-hmm. some of these people have been doing this job longer than I've been alive. And they yeah. seem, and it's a constant game of poker. So you've got a, a poker face on the whole time. Sometimes you're bluffing, but the reality is you've got to pretend to be confident just so it instills almost fear in your opponents. Because mm. the moment they smell weakness, I feel like you're done. So I think dealing with um, Mm self-confidence
0: and self-doubt would be a huge thing that I'm trying to work on. Mm -hmm. And for those young people who are kind of breaking into an industry that is quite traditional, Mm. you know, they've got certain ways of doing things, certain routes that you've got to go and it's quite rigid and stuff like that. What advice would you give to young people who are kind of going through that? You know, I think it's probably similar for, you know, medicine and, and, you know, law. They always come up as those things that, you know, you have to follow a certain set path and it can be really hard. What advice would you give?
1: My advice would be do what you enjoy for as long as, as possible, you don't need to get a law degree. So, if anyone tells you you do, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Do a degree that you're passionate about, whether that and, and with a lawyer, you can do any degree and then you just do the conversion course as soon as you've got that degree. Mm-hmm. So, I would do what you want to do, keep it in the back burner if you're not sure, experience as much as possible and be sort of different with your experiences as well. And then, if you want to convert, then convert at the last minute. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an easy job to do just convert did you do law at uni I did but yeah. that's only because I knew I wanted to be a lawyer yeah. teachers of mine were saying do history do English you like them you've never done law before mm-hmm. and law's really dry and it's three years and nah. but I knew I wanted to do a law degree mm-hmm. so I didn't want to put something off for three years I didn't want to do English or history degree you no. know no disrespect to anyone that does those degrees but for me I did what I wanted to do and yeah. that was law and you saw your path and you kind of just, just went with it. And yeah. also, don't look at what these people, the traditional barrister, doctor looks like and think you've got to make fit the mould. You don't. I don't come across, well, I hope not, as a traditional stereotypical barrister. I like to think I'm relatable, approachable, but I'm still very good at my job. Yeah. And you can you be you yeah.
0: and also be very good in whatever profession you choose. Mm-hmm. I love that. Grace, it's been so amazing to have you on the podcast. Thank you for breaking down so many barriers for, you know, the young people that listen to this podcast and the people in their twenties who are also trying to, you know, navigate their careers and try and, you know, make up make space and prove that they are. Absolutely amazing. No matter what age they are, yeah. you know, I think you're an amazing advocate for that for sure. Um, we always end our podcast though. Yeah. We have the very same question that we ask all of our guests and it's, if you could look back at 20 year old Grace, you know, the ghost of 20 year old Grace and give her just one piece of advice that would see her through her 20s, what would you want to tell her? I'd tell her to chill <laughs> out. Like
1: <laughs> relax, you 20 years old. I know you want to be a barrister, but stop and just, just breathe. Everything will work out how it's supposed to be. And you will be one, mm-hmm. but just have fun and do exciting things, and stop putting so much pressure on yourself to get established so early on. Mm-hmm. Do you wish you'd actually said that to you? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I wish someone had told me that everything was going to be fine, yeah. and that I would be a barrister one day because I was hustling so hard, thinking I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to make it. Yeah, you know, I have seen friends of mine get pupillage, and I wasn't. I was thinking, right, that's it. I'm never mm-hmm. gonna. I'm never gonna be a barrister. So now I am. I wish I would have just enjoyed the process a bit more, you know. Stop
0: and it's the amount of pressure I put on myself. I made mm. myself ill, you know. Mm. I gave myself shingles. So I, I for, really those, for those on... young people who are kind of in that position and probably telling themselves yeah. that right now, wh- what would you say? I would say that at twenty years old, you are fresh out of yeah. any any
1: organisation. You come to university, school, college. So just take a breather. Do something fun learn from it, get a bit of life experience. What stood me good stead for getting pupillage was the fact I'd gone and done other things Mm -hmm. and they liked a well-rounded applicant. So actually you coming fresh from university isn't always the best seller Mm -hmm. because you've got nothing else to offer. Go and do something else for a while, something interesting, and then go and
0: apply when you're a bit more Mm well-rounded. Thank you, Grace. I've so loved having you on the podcast. It's been amazing to chat with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.